does God have a Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back with part two with our dear friend Jacqueline Bussey. Uh, if you missed part one last week, hit pause on this one, go back, listen to that part, or else it's going to seem like we just started up in the middle of a conversation, which is exactly what's about to happen. So uh, this is part two. This is the second half of my conversation with, uh, with Jacqueline on the topic of grief and grieving. Next week, we will have our final episode in this series, and then the week after, we will start off on a new topic. So um, lots of cool guests coming your way. Uh, but specifically to this particular series, um, when it comes to grief and grieving, uh, I'm hoping that this has been a helpful uh, healing and informative uh, journey for all of you. Uh, more to come on that, but um, uh, again, hopefully this is uh, a help in some way, whether you're going through it firsthand or trying to support those who are, um, you know, we've got opportunities, right, to, uh, to to do this a little bit better, be a little more supportive and, and allow people the space and give them the permission that they deserve to to feel what they're feeling and go it at their own pace. And so um, I'm hoping that this has been useful. And, um, you know, if if you don't love the topic, that's okay. Uh, the, the beautiful thing is we have new guests all the time and we cover all sorts of different topics. And so, um, we will, we will explore many different, uh, themes and topics, uh, this season. And I'm very excited, uh, to hit on some things that we haven't touched on before. So, uh, cool new guests coming, very excited for you guys to hear those, but until then let's get to it. Uh, so as always though, if you want to support, uh, the podcast, if you go to our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. You can link to our social media, uh, read any blog posts, um, listen to our entire back catalog of episodes. If you want to support us, we do have a web store with some uh, t-shirt designs and some other stuff, um, some of which you can even drink liquid out of. Uh, and then there's also our Patreon. If you want to join the Patreon family, uh, spend some time over the last couple months revamping it with some different packages on there, including uh, new merchandise options that are available to be shipped worldwide, which is not something we've been able to do before. Um, typically and historically, um, we use a printer who is local to us here in Ohio. It does an amazing job, but it's really hard uh, it was really difficult to figure out, you know, international shipping. So now we figured that out through the magic of Patreon. And so some options are there. Um, we still got the book club going on there. And then, of course, um, you'll get exclusive access to all sorts of things. So I've been posting blog posts early on there, as well as um, this horde of pictures that I, I found and, and uh, put all together so that I can, um, you know, release some of the, the behind the scenes stuff uh, from couple live shows that we did early on and uh all, all sorts of other stuff mostly adam and i making stupid faces but if you like that sort of thing um you can check out patreon and then i've also been posting them on our new tiktok account um and then of course if you enjoy the full length episodes the whole shebang all at once like we uh historically have released i'm still putting those uncut and unedited on the patreon for any subscribers at about 10 bucks or above, um, you'll get an early access to it and in its full um, hour-long glory. So a uh, few things on there to look forward to if you're into that. So if not, thank you guys so much for supporting and telling a friend. Appreciate the support and the word of mouth. Um, yeah. And with that, let's get to part two and the, the fi- final uh, piece uh, to this interview with Jacqueline freaking Bussy. Me, God will survive. 
One of the things you talk about too that I thought was was interesting, um, as somebody who's a big history nerd, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you talk about the fact that, and, and this is true, you know, different cultures respond differently to grief. Um, and as as Megan also corrected me, not one is better than the other. We're all doing it rather poorly. Just some maybe do it a little better than others. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's true. I agree with that, by the way. Um, but we we have handled it even as a society. We've we've changed the way that we we deal with it over time. And you mentioned uh, one example is you know Victorian era. Um, you know, people would, would dress accordingly, you know, they could self-identify as, as one who is going through grief because they're wearing all black and, or a black armband. And what was remarkable to me about it was not just like the special clothing, but the period of time in which you, it was fully acceptable for you to wear this, this marker as one who is going through grief. Um, talk about that a little bit. I thought that was really interesting and I'm all on board. I think you even mentioned your students were like, we should bring that back. And I agree. (laughs) Oh, they did. When I teach the traditions of grieving, my students, they're just, their eyes are wide open. They're like, what? We don't have anything like that. Ah, and it, they they feel the pain of what what a poor job we're doing, how we're letting one another down on an absolute daily basis. So yes, so in some of my research when I was writing uh, Outlaw Christian and Love Without Limits. Some of the things I became fascinated by was what other cultures do with grief other than my own, right? And I and I'm very clear what I mean by that is my white Christian culture, right? It's both white, I think whiteness is playing a big part there. And I want I want to emphasize that because I actually think I'm gonna have to, this is a place I would disagree with Megan, uh, because (laughs) I actually think there are uh cultures that are doing a magnificent job of addressing folks' grief. And I'm not saying they do it perfectly, but I'm saying they do it 100% better than, than my culture does. And so I think that that deserves a massive shout out. So one of the examples that I use in the book is um, Native Spiritualities. So I talk about the book written by Martin Prechtel, which just even has a beautiful title. It's called The Smell of Rain on Dust. The Smell mm. of Rain on Dust, which in Prechtel's uh, indigenous language is one word. So in in his own language, the book would have a one word title. But of course, in my English language, we don't have a word for the smell of rain on dust. And he's using that to make a point. We don't have a lot of words in English for things that we don't want to acknowledge are real, right? Of course, you know what the smell of rain on dust is. You do know what that is. Similarly, we know what grief actually is. And so he talks about, oh, the book is amazing. He rewrites our understanding of grief and explains that within his culture, grief is praise. Grief is praise. He says, you know, in his community, when a person is grieving, they're allowed to say and do anything they want. If they need to walk through the street, wailing their eyes out and screaming at the top of their lungs and dropping the F-bomb, and just letting it all go, they will not be judged for that. In his culture, that is expected. You are not judged for anything you say while grieving. You aren't held to it. You know, you're not held to it a year later. Well, you said F-bomb this. No, no, uh uh-uh, no, no. The grieving person has a permission slip to be fully human and fully grieving. Now, I'm sorry, but I think... That's a damn excellent job (laughs) at grieving. 
you know, and I'm sure there's people who could criticize parts of it too. But to me, it sounds like heaven as a grieving person who's never allowed to wail in public. Um, in Martin Prechtel's culture, he explains that your wailing and your crying is the raft that takes your beloved person across the river to the other shore. It is actually you. It is actually everyone crying. And without that, they're never going to make it. I mean, okay, that is the exact opposite of telling me I need to take Prozac because I'm still crying over my husband, which literally a, a doctor has told me to do. You know, no, no, no. Martin Prechtel goes on and on his book. He's like, the problem with most of Western culture is that you think that grief is a disease. That's what you think. And he's like, I don't think that. And he tells this, this terrible, terrible true story of how his dear white Christian friend has to attend a funeral for his mother. You know, and of course, this friend reaches out to Martin Prechtel and is like, oh, what should I do? Like, I, that's, we're having this funeral for my mother. And I know you've been through grief and, you know, you understand grief. And, and so Martin gives his friend the best advice that he knows based on his spirituality. And he says, you just need to let it all go. You need to stand by her grave and you need to cry and you need to wail and you need to love your people. And so the white Christian friend goes to his mother's funeral and he does just that. This is a true story. And you know what happens to him? John, you know what happens? His I family do. Calls him. You do, because you've read my book. But, <laughs> but our listeners don't it's know. So and I want them to know that that man's family called him an ambulance. Yes. Ugh. And, you know, I write in my book, I'm like, this is the problem with us today. We think grace we think grief deserves an ambulance rather than what it really deserves which is just our arms wide open it just deserves our arms we need to Mm. embrace the grieving person since then i've done more reading and i've learned that in many indigenous spiritualities the grieving person is considered to be a sage because they are walking that line they've got one foot in another world because the person that they love best just went there. And so they are seen as a person you go to for advice. Can you imagine? Like, I, I, you know, I hear that and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I don't think anyone thought of me as a person to come to, well, except my, my native friends, right? As a person yeah. to come to for wisdom while I was grieving. And yet the truth of the matter is, John, there in my days of the deepest gray, grief, there was something unusual about me. I even noticed I could like read things. I know this is going to sound weird to everybody listening, but not if you've ever grieved, you'll know, you will hear me for what I am saying. And we are tapping into our ancestors, spirituality, right? That like truly the ancient sages are trying to teach us grieving. People are wise. Just go sit at their feet and ask them stuff. Because they know. And I'll just give one like really strange example. I had gone with my friend to a pottery studio after my husband had died. There's a pottery studio on the campus where I work and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And people come every day and they drink tea and they learn about the studio. And the day that I was there with my friend, I Matt had only been dead about two months. And there was a woman there 
who is a visitor from out of state. Okay. She's just visiting. She's talking to the man who, the director of the studio. She's sitting there. She's got a girlfriend with her, you know, from out of state. They didn't say anything. I don't know anything about that woman's life. They left. We left. And I said to my friend, I said, because she knows the director of the studio. And I said, you know, do you know that woman who was there? And she was like, no, I don't know her. And I said, I, this is so bizarre. I know how bizarre this sounds. I want everyone to know. I know that what I'm saying is bizarre, but you have to hear me out. I said to her, I said, did that woman's husband die? I said, I feel like, I think that woman's husband is dead. And she was like, what? She was like, well, I have no idea. She's like, I don't know her. But she said, you know, I'll ask the director of the studio. You know, I, I think that he knows her. So whatever, days go by. She circled back and she just was like, hey, you know, this is weird. But Jacqueline was like feeling compassion for that woman. Did her husband die? And the director goes, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> he just died like last month. And he was like, how could Jack? What? He's like, how could Jacqueline know that? She doesn't even know her name. And I said, I just knew. And so, like, th- we have to pay attention to this. Like, grieving people, they have, like, you know, I'm not saying that's true for me anymore, but it was. Like, I could look at people and feel things that I had never felt before. And so, we just have to say, yeah, other cultures are doing a much better job than us. And I think that's important. We don't even allow people to dress anymore in grieving clothes. And if you look at the Bible, what does the Bible say that people do when they're grieving? It says that they shaved their head and it says that they dressed in sackcloth and ashes. If that is not the biggest sign to the whole world that you are not okay and it's okay that you're not okay, to quote Megan, uh, then what is? We don't let people do that. We don't let them do that. White Christians are not in the business of letting anyone even wear a black armband anymore like Christians did in the Victorian era. And this is exhausting. I mean, I even learned when I was doing research, this is fascinating, that in Tahitian culture, Tahitian culture, when a woman, I don't know if this is true anymore, but it was like for a time. So it's extremely important that if a woman had lost a beloved child or a spouse, she took a shark's tooth and carved a scar, like cut herself on her forehead, just a little scar so that everybody would know that she had loved and lost. Wow. Yeah. Now we don't Mm. even want to know. So. Yeah, we, we can't even show our inside scars, much less an outside right. scar, you know? Right. And they make it external so that you know what's on the inside is so that when you look at someone, you know they are a suffering person. Mm. I think it's beautiful. I, yeah. I think I want to live in a culture like that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it, that kind of leads me to uh, this other section of your chapter that I thought was, was really interesting. It was you, you talk about... Within the Jewish tradition, and there's a word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. It starts with a K. Um, Korea. Korea. Yes. Korea. There you go. <laughs> like the country, um, but that's not how it's spelled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of, it like, and you talk about kind of the, there's not like a direct English translation that, that really suffices, but it kind of almost comes across as like, um, uh, to me, it almost 
Oh, you know what? Not Korea. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking at a different, different, uh, oh, okay. different not Korea. Uh, the Greek word in Matthew, uh, chapter five, verse 48, uh, starts with a T teleosis. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. Good try. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just sounding it out just like the old days. Um, <laughs> But we often translate it to mean perfect, but it almost comes across more so as like mature or evolved, which is sort of like the way we need to approach our faith in general. It seems like a lot of in a lot of ways, we we just never quite evolve past as uh, as our favorite Richard Rohr would say this first grade level of understanding. But especially when it comes to grief and grieving, it seems like we we need to take a more mature approach or a more evolved approach towards it. We do. Oh my gosh. We definitely do. We, we pathologize it, right? This is what we do with grief in our culture. We medicate it. We repress it. We pathologize it. We shame it. We literally do everything except allow it. I think I say in the book something like, you know, we, we treat it like zits or cellulite. You know, we think it needs yeah. makeup. We think we need to hide it or we think it needs spanks right? Something again to hide it, to hide it, right? We just want to hide it, hide it, hide it. And it's like, maybe we have a misunderstanding. I I, I have come to believe, and I I say this to all audiences, that grief doesn't need healing. People talk like that. They're like, you just need to heal from your grief. It's like, no, 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 no. Grief is the healing. Grief doesn't need healing. Again, that's that pathologizing. You're making it a disease. Why are you making it a disease? I mean, would all of the ancient sages, like all the way back to like the Hebrew scriptures, be talking about that you need to like walk around in sackcloth and ashes? And, you know, in the Jewish tradition from the Bible, you are literally tearing your clothes over your heart so that your clothes are ripped and everyone knows your heart is broken. Like once again, look at all these manifestations. And then I just want everybody listening to ask themselves, what does our mainstream dominant culture in the United States let you do that shows people that you are grieving on the inside? What's one manifestation that's allowed? Mm. Yeah, you know the answer because the answer is nothing. That's what's allowed. <laughs> yeah. You need to put on your makeup. You need to go to work and you need to put a smile on that face. And when people ask you how you're doing, you need to say, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. These are all lies. This is toxic positivity. And I believe that it is killing people. I truly believe that when people feel at an end and they feel like, they need to take their own life. It is because we have not created a space that is on us. We have not, it's not on them. I'm tired of blaming victims, right? Or whatever we want to call people. Like I'm not blaming. I'm going to stop with the blaming, except for I'm going to say we're all accountable for not having created a space where people can show their grief, where people can lament in community and it is accepted. Show me that space. I'm going to show up in it. Yeah, you you give it a, a really cool example in, in the chapter about um, I believe it was a, a church you went to on I think it was Mother's Day. Yes, where they they sort of allowed for that where you could come up and and celebrate you know a, a loved one you know but you could also you know grieve and and sadness and you know kind of like the uh, the Pixar movie you know joy and sadness figure out that they 
they they need each other. They have to coexist. We need both of them. Right. And I thought that was a beautiful story that that you uh, that you share. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had told the story of the Unitarian Universalist Church in Fargo. And to be honest, John, you know, and I'm sure you feel this too, because you've lost your amazing mom. Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Why do we walk around saying to the whole world, Happy Mother's Day? Okay. It's like Merry Christmas. Why, why, why are we saying that? Is everybody's Christmas merry? Is everybody's Mother's Day happy? It's not. And why are we going to pretend that it is? When we say those things too much, we are creating the illusion and the mistaken notion that there's only one acceptable emotion on, on these days. And personally, everybody's saying Happy Mother's Day to me, you know, after I, you know, lost my mother, I was such a young person. I was like, Mother's Day is the least, everybody my age had a mom, like still all my friends, you know, I was like, Mother's Day is the least happy day of the year, you know, for me at the time. So I was like, where's, where's the space for this? Like nobody is acknowledging this for me. And so I went to this church, you know, and I was speaking at the church and it was so beautiful because I'd never been to a service like this. And, you know, Unitarian Universalist churches are not Christian, right? They're their own religion. And this was something so freeing because they had this moment where they would light candles and you could go up and you could, and they literally said, you can share anything, any grief or joy that you have about Mother's Day. But they led off by a set of prayers that acknowledged, that like named that Mother's Day is a complicated day. Like this was literally in the prayer. Mm-hmm. Like they prayed for everybody who didn't speak to their mother, that their mother was angry, that they never knew their mom. I mean, they just like they went through this whole thing. Anyone who had an abortion, anyone who had a miscarriage, anyone who like they were, everyone was included. Like this was like the most massive mother's day prayer. You know, people had a complicated relationship with their mother, you know, people who, you know, had an adopted mom, people who couldn't have children. Like think of all the complexities that go into a so-called mother's day, right. To say nothing of if your mother's just dead, you know, and it's yeah. a sad day for you. So these people went up and they lit the candles and they said things I'd never heard. And people cried and I, they talked about miscarriages and how they couldn't be moms. And I was like, oh my God, like this is the most authentic Mother's Day. I have never belonged more. And I was the speaker that day beautifully. And so people had read my book, you know, the first one, Outlaw Christian, which talked about the, the death of my mother and my grief. And I was like, oh my gosh, these people are amazing. You know, but then I also spoke about something that really is trending now. So I'm happy to say that when I first wrote Outlaw Christian, first spoke of it, that was not really going on very much. You know, that book came out in 2016. But I talked also about, John, the amazing things that uh, churches are doing these days. And it's often called Blue Christmas. And yes. it's a service. It's an alternative Christmas service that is for people who are grieving at Christmas. And that is so beautiful. Now I've been the speaker at that a lot because now people know that I'm into that. That's the Christmas service I want to be present at. That's the Christmas service I want to preach at. So this year in Alexandria, Minnesota, I was invited to what their congregation calls a night for weary hearts. And it was their alternative Christmas. And it was like so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I was Calvary Lutheran in Alexandria, Minnesota. I'm giving them a shout out. 
for even doing that service because so many churches are like, nope, Merry Christmas. Come on in. Sing joy to the world. You know, doesn't matter that your spouse. And there are people there. Everybody had had someone die of the horror. Someone had lost a teenage son. And, you know, we grieved together. We cried together. There were Kleenexes on every table and cookies. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. We had time for fellowship. We had time to talk. We sat at round tables. We didn't sit in pews. Like we needed each other. I don't know, but I thought it was beautiful. I love those people for inviting me into that space and for creating that space for their parishioners. And I think we can all take a lesson from all these people doing all these good things and making a space for public grief. That's amazing. I, I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, to give my dad some, some credit, uh, the blue, the blue Christmas service. Um, <laughs> seeing as my dad, if he's listening is, um, has been obsessed with grief his entire life. Um, we're like, dad, that's really a depressing topic to, to focus on. But you know, now that I'm adult, I see how necessary it is because, you know, not a lot of people, um, really dive into that topic in a way, uh, where we really examine, you know, how poorly, you know, we, we kind of support those around us. And so I've, I've learned a lot over the years, just in terms of my approach to other people, you know, just in terms of like most of the time I think, and I noticed this when I was going through the the loss of my mother this last fall, I, I, I thought it was interesting. Most of the younger people were the ones who kind of were better, uh, just in regards to their approach to me versus like the older, the older generation, like told Megan this too, were really the ones who were kind of throwing the kind of platitudes at me and the horrible euphemism, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she's in a better place now. At least she's not in pain. I'm like, I don't want to hear that shit right now. Like, come on. <laughs> yes. No. But the younger folks, you know, I, I had more than, more than a few people who were, you know, uh, on the younger side who came up and said, you know, I'm really sorry. If there's anything you need, let me know. And I didn't know what I needed in the moment. I still don't. (laughs) Um, But just that offer and just, just the fact that they didn't try to, you know, compare grief with me or, or try to make me feel better. They just said, acknowledged it. Yeah, this sucks. And if there's anything that you need, you know, I'm here for you. That was, that was all I needed. That's right. That's the most beautiful thing. I think we can say to somebody. In in a situation like that. I think you're very astute, John, to realize and to name, I should say, that younger people, you know, you know, they're not having any of this. They're they're not. Mm -hmm. This is a legacy from older folks like me and my generation that at least my students, I can speak for this very accurately, don't want to inherit from us. You know, every time I would talk to my students about everything I've said to you, because I, you know, I teach, you know, things from my books, of course, you know, in my classes and my students just responded so strongly that every time I would say to them, okay, I feel like one of the laws that is, is kind of tacit within dominant culture is always apologize for tears. And Mm -hmm. I would talk, I would talk that out with my students. Like, do you think that's true? Because my students, they were good Midwesterners and they would always like start crying in my classes because in my classes, we, we talk real, you know, and there are tears and my students would begin to cry and they would invariably apologize. But also I would then start a conversation about why are we doing that? Apologies are supposed to be for something that's mean or disrespectful or embarrassing. And I would say to them, are tears any of those things? 
that they would merit an apology. And then they would start thinking about it. And then they would get really pissed. They would be so pissed off. They were like, wait a minute. Why are we doing that? And then they would always, we always had these community agreements, John, in my classes where the students, we would come to the, our agreements together and we would add to them all semester. Things, rules that we wanted to keep and hold ourselves accountable to, right? Just to one another. And the students would always, every semester after we had this conversation, they would go up to our community agreements, which are always kept on, you know, on a, on a big post-it note in our classroom. And one of them would write, you don't need to apologize for tears in this space. They would say, we're going to stop apologizing. They would like vow. And then for the rest of the semester, you could watch them. They would cry and nobody would apologize. And I was like, I like to think that I'm part of a larger cultural moment (laughs) in which there are a lot of us out there. We've been saying it for a long time. I've been teaching that for 20 years. Like, you know, and now it's becoming, I think, better. People are finally, I think we're all, the wisdom is there. It's in the, it's in the water now. We're like, no, no more of this. It's killing us. We have to stop. And we will, we will cry. We will embrace that with one another and we're not going to apologize. I love that. That stuck with me. I think the first time I saw you speak at uh, Trinity down here in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, um, when, when you mentioned that, um, that, that activity that you, uh, that you engage in with your students, I thought that is brilliant. And so mm-hmm. now it's almost funny because now people are like, if you start to get choked up, like I get choked up, um, you know, periodically, you know, uh, you know, and, and when we talked about before we started recording, when, when you get that wave of grief, you know, when you go from being, yes. you know, okay to just getting hit with that grief, whether it's yes. due to a landmine, you know, like we talked about where, something mundane will, will trigger that response. Cause it makes you think of that loved one or whatever. But now it's almost like people are like, it's okay. You can, you can cry. And, and you, you kind of almost want to go, I know, I know Jacqueline gave me permission a long time ago. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so but I have to well, say, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. but they're almost know, waiting for you to apologize, you know, for right. it. Right. Mm-hmm. No, it's so true. You know, there is somebody else you should have on your, on your podcast who I think is really great about this. And I've only just met her and I'm going to do a speaking thing that she's a part of as well in April, but is Kate Bowler. Oh, I just had her. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. See, you already did because she sent me. So I was on her Christmas list this year. She's she's wonderful. Amazing human. And you know, cause it's been my thing for like decades. I'm just so mad about this Merry Christmas. Christmas is not Merry. So many people have suffered a loss and the holidays are hard. How do we not know this? Right. Yeah. It's so hard. But she sent a Christmas ornament out on her Christmas list this year that I, ju- I was perfect. <laughs> this is why I love her. It said, it didn't say Merry Christmas on it. You know what it said? What? Messy Christmas. Oh, that's good. And I, like I love that. And she was like, may your Christmas be messy and bright. And I was like, ah, oh, oh. it's so perfect because like, yeah, no, no with the Mary. Everybody is not Mary, but most people's Christmas is messy. So yeah, I thought it was Oh perfect. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. could talk all about that, um, but I won't. But um, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think the way your chapter ends is, is the perfect way to, uh, uh, to end our time today, which is that you talk about. Um, and, and I'll just quote you here. Um, joy and grief is, as kind of dance partners and room for both. And so you talk about all grief is love and all love will someday cause you grief and how love outwits death in the end. And so talk about that. And then you also tell this beautiful story about Phyllis and Bill. And I thought, 
if that doesn't prove it, you know, I, I don't, I got nothing else then. I mean, literally it. like, and, and that's something too, I think we should talk about is the fact that, um, some of the, some of the other types of grief that you referenced earlier, um, that don't necessarily involve a death. You know, there are other types of grief. We, we are absolute horseshit at dealing with, which, you know, <laughs> yes. like someone who's like dealing with, like you, like you mentioned your mom, Alzheimer's, you know, like Dr. Pauline boss, who's one of my favorites who has a great book called ambiguous loss, uh, addresses the fact that a lot of counselors and a, a lot of people in society just don't know how to deal with, uh, loss that isn't necessarily the death of a loved one. So like, how do we, how do we support those who are slowly watching a loved one kind of disappear before their very eyes, like death by a thousand paper cuts. You have to grieve every single day as they slowly lose pieces of their memory or like prisoners of war, um, who aren't necessarily confirmed dead, but they're gone, you know, or, or, just breakups or divorces, you know, that person is still alive, but there's a death of that thing, that dream that you once had together. And there, so there are all these other types of grief too, that, you know, aren't necessarily, uh, as traumatic perhaps as, um, you know, the death of a loved one, but still merit discussion and still warrant, um, you know, a, a society and a community around you that, that just does a better job of like, holding you in that, in that space and, and through that experience. Mm. That's absolutely right. There's so much disenfranchised grief in our culture, right? It's not just death. Where are we letting people mourn miscarriages? We don't even tell people we're pregnant for three months in case there's a miscarriage. So then there's nothing to even grieve. I mean, think about that. And then that, 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 you know, a, person who hopes to be a mother is grieving all alone because mm. we've even set that up because nobody even knew she was pregnant. I mean, it's, it's insanity. The levels to which we go to, to avoid grief and having to talk about loss and like everything you said, divorce and, and the whole nine yards. It, it's just, it's, it's all disenfranchised. It's di psychologists have a term for it. It's disenfranchised grief. And we are part of the disenfranchising when we don't create that space. So, yeah. So, Let's go back to what you had mentioned, because I think when I spoke, it's the perfect ending, right? Because when I spoke at the, for our conversation, because when I spoke at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that I felt that the things that I had said in this chapter came from a wisdom beyond myself. And the biggest wisdom that I felt that came from beyond myself was the conclusion that I had reached. Because the conclusion that I reached was that grief is the absolute shittiest thing as a human being that you will ever go through. And, not but, and it's evidence of something. And I still remember sitting there that day when that came to me like a revelation. And it did not come to me from myself. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough, I think, to have. And I hadn't actually grieved enough to have come up with a wisdom like that. But the thing that I said was that grief is proof that love outwits death. And the reason I felt that that was true, because grief wouldn't exist if it wasn't. 
So it made me think, let's think for the, let's just think for a second about this. If death had the last word, if death spoke last, then all of our love would just disappear into the grave with the person who's gone. It would just go with them. But if the love stays beyond death, what you get is grief. Now that's not pretty. Nothing about that is good necessarily, but it is an upshot. I refer to it as an upshot of grief. The upshot is that tears are salty evidence that love speaks last. Every tear that you're crying is proof that death is real, but love outwits it. I think it's important to to remember that, that even as you are in the throes of the hellscape that is grief, that hellscape itself is proof that in some very real way, love has outrun death. And I, I just, I can't say it enough times because I think that I have to remind myself of it because there's days I don't believe it, but then I just think, well... It has to be true. It has to be true because otherwise I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have any grief at all. Right. I'd just be over it. I'd be like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. But he's gone. I loved him and he's gone and now it's time to move on. Mm. Right. And that's not how this goes. And I loved when Meg, I felt that Megan Devine had like reached in and spoken to my soul, you know, when she wrote, um, Grief does not need a solution any more than love needs a solution. And I'd written my book before her, you know, and I was like, amen, sister. Like, you know, that's (laughs) what I am saying. Like, you know, like she's saying it differently, right? She's saying it in her own beautiful way out of the depths of her own pain. And we have Mm. to speak from the depths of those pain. So then to get to your, that last thing that you had asked, John. So it's proof of this. I tell a story in the book that comes from my beloved student, Marta. She gave me permission, sacred permission to share this beautiful story that she had told me one day when I was sad and she was sad because her grandmother was dying of Alzheimer's in the same way that my mother had died many years previously. And Marta told me that her grandfather's name was Bill and her grandmother's name was Phyllis, if I'm remembering that correctly. And They had taken her to the doctor, right? Because there's different tests that they do for Alzheimer's. And they knew that she had that. But, you know, there's different tests that they do. And a lot of it is they they ask you questions. And one part of it, I remember this. They'd done this with my mother, too. They were like, take this pen and write down one thing. Just anything. Anything that you can remember. And a lot of people, if they're pretty advanced, you know, they can't write anything. And at that stage... It was expected that Phyllis could probably write nothing, right? You know, she was pretty far gone. She didn't know people's names. You know, there was almost nothing that she could say. Um, She took that pen and thought about it for a minute. And then she wrote, I love Bill. Mm. And I cried. I cry every time. I'm crying now, like, because that is like... She doesn't know who the president is or how old she is or even 
who is her child, but she remembered that she loved her husband. And you know, you have to say to yourself, that is the only thing that really mattered. She knew what really mattered. You know, she remembered that love. And if that is not proof that love outwits death and Alzheimer's and every other piece of shit that this world is going to throw at us, racism, misogyny, then I don't, I don't know what is better proof. I, I just think we have, to, we have to believe, we have to taste the salt of our own tears and know we have to remember the truth. Love outwits death. Mm. Perfect way to end. Thank <laughs> well, it was a good part. You asked the right last question, right? So. I try. <laughs> yeah, you do well. You do well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that, that was beautiful. And um, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on again. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I always learn something. It's always a <laughs> gift to me to be on the show. So thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. John was young and driven with a heart of gold Finished seminary, married, found a church he could call Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand Until he told his leaders that he had some feelings for another man And they said, John, you must go And take your broken heart and walk it to the door We know you're hurting And you've been but now you're damaged goods and you gotta give some more John, we love you But we can't love you You must go
Don't you go? 